loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Joelle Simone Anthony. Joelle is a licensed funeral director, insurance agent, and sacred grief practitioner. She specializes in guiding individuals, families, businesses, and governmental agencies to navigate uncomfortable and difficult conversations about death, dying, end-of-life, funeral, and burial planning. Joelle was born in Europe and raised in Beaufort, South Carolina, the heart of Gullah and Geechee culture. Spirituality, the sacredness of death, caring for those in transition, the deceased and supporting her community through grief have always been a huge part of her life. Her professional approach is deeply rooted in ancient and ancestral wisdom passed down generation to generation. Her unique experience and training helps her to guide her clients through their journeys of grief. It is her life's work to educate everyone, regardless of faith, race, age, or status, that death, dying, and grief are sacred and transformative to our journeys as human beings. Welcome, Joelle. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. And it's actually Beaufort, South Carolina. Oh, Beaufort, South Carolina. You know, it didn't feel quite right when I said it. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. Of course, you're not the um, only one who made that mistake. <laughs> uh, for sure. Um, so here's where I want to start. Just in your in your bio, which I just shared, uh, is so much I can resonate with having uh, learned about the sacredness of that part of life by participating in my wife's death. Um, and and so I'm always so happy to talk to people who see it from that perspective, because, of course, that is not the way our culture in general looks at it. So that's the first thing I want to say. Thank you for that resonance. Wow, thank you. Um, I don't I, I consider that to be one of the gifts that this work has afforded me is to really look at things from the back end and when others resonate with that, it just warms my heart so much because it it reaffirms that there's purpose to this indeed. Absolutely. And maybe this is the place to start is how you, you said you've kind of been in going in this direction your whole life, but uh, I don't think any child grows up saying, I think I want to be a funeral director when I grow up. Or maybe you did. Can you, can you <laughs> let me in on... Um, kind of what drew you to the work in the first place? Uh, sure. You you obviously feel called to it. I can tell that from some of the things I've watched that you've recorded and, and all of that. But uh, what specifically led you in this direction? Of course. So I always give the same two answers when I'm asked this question. And those are God and my Uncle Mark. Um, my Uncle Mark was a funeral director when I was a little girl and I was one of those people that said, you know what, I want to take care of the dead. 
and help people cry when I grow up. Mm. And I had no idea in saying that, that this is what would be my life. But my uncle Mark, I mean, from the time I was about seven or eight years old, when we'd go to visit him for spring break or during the summer, or even when he'd come home to South Carolina um, for holidays, I had hundreds of questions for him about what happened to our bodies when we passed away. And why do people do this at funerals? And why are people sad? And why are we sitting here looking at this person and who did their hair and their makeup? And he took his time and answered all of those questions. I also was very, very exposed to death, dying and grief in my youth. Um, it's a big part of my culture for children to participate in end of life rituals, to visit mourners and the family of the person who's been lost and to really commune and take care of those people once a loss has occurred in my culture we aren't you know kept away from death we're not kept away from the grieving process and that in accumulation with visiting my uncle at the funeral home and him teaching me that you know the funeral home and especially the embalming room and the graveyard were sacred places that deserve to be respected and that were very important not only to the deceased but to their loved ones that's that's uh, really warms me in the sense that it just felt right to me. I, I had um, a two and a half year old and a 14 year old when my wife died. Mm -hmm. And it just felt right to me that they uh, be included. Mm -hmm. I had a previous experience of death for someone as part of my older child's life that I had kept her out of and it was a mistake. So that was part of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned in those three years, but um, it does seem to me as if our culture, well, uh, at least our, our white, more middle-class culture specifically thinks children can't handle it. And you're a great representation of the falseness of that idea. Uh, because it actually deepened your understanding and it doesn't sound as if it scared you whatsoever. Honestly, it didn't. It really piqued my curiosity. And I think that as adults, even, you know, whether you're, whether we're white, we're black or any other race or demographic, I think sometimes it's a trauma or defense mechanism or response to try to shelter those that we love from experiences that have caused us emotional distress. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of that misinformation comes from the fact that we as adults feel so out of control and so helpless when someone passes away. But as with many things, as the saying goes from the mouths of babes, um, how many times have our children, or I don't, I'm not a mother, but children in our lives or young people around us bought us comfort or shifted our perspective through th seeing things through their their mind and their their eyes which sometimes is just so very simplistic when we try to complicate experiences for for whatever reason an experience i had is popping to mind that's relevant which is that uh because of her training my oldest child is is pretty comfortable talking about these subjects mm -hmm. but her oldest son when he was maybe seven, I want to say, was getting very anxious about death. Mm. Very, very anxious. And she, they talked with him about it and all this, but it wasn't making much a difference. And she asked if I would talk to him. 
as the grandmother. So we had this long conversation, kind of a deep dive. And, you know, I talked about the people in my life that had died. I got up a picture of my my wife and said, now I feel as if I have a different form of relationship with her that's not dependent on her body. And, you know, I'm sure she'd be happy to look after you too, you know, we just really went there together. It was a beautiful conversation and he was not at all anxious during the conversation. He had lots of questions, um, you know, how was that for me, this and that. And I didn't hear about anxiety about death again. Uh, hmm. Did he keep feeling it? I don't know, but he doesn't seem particularly to convey that as a 10-year-old. And it it was such a pleasure to be able to engage in that with him and to be invited to. So I think kids can handle whatever there is to handle. That's my viewpoint. <laughs> um, you know, within um, within their personalities and age. I agree 100%. I have a 14-year-old cousin who was, I believe, seven or eight when his grandmother passed away. And while the majority of our family was in complete shock because her death was unexpected, I can remember him just kind of sitting around and saying, Nani wouldn't want us to be sad or, you know, everything's going to be okay because Nani's looking after us, you know, all, all the time now. And just whether that's like a spiritual enlightenment, whether that's a child's mind, but he just seemed to have so much peace when the adults around him were operating emotionally. Hmm. There, it feels like there are two pieces of that. One be, being that kids don't want their the people they're dependent on to be upset, right? Yeah. But yeah. the other part, um, offering comfort, which kids are are really actually quite capable of. And, and yes. it's beautiful when they have that impulse, isn't it? It really is. And I'm thinking back, um, I can remember a lot of attention being on my uncle and my cousins, my aunt's children, but I don't really remember a lot of attention being on my younger cousin, who is her grandson. And so for him to take that position was just really phenomenal thinking back. Mm, yeah. For sure. And I imagine that as a person who helps people figure out what they want for um, death ritual, let's just call it that as a broad category, you must encounter very many different points of views about that. Like people who bring their kids and ask their opinion up, up to and including, you know, they're not the kids aren't even allowed to the, to the funeral. Um, mm -hmm. is, is that correct? Is Do you have a, like a, a very wide range of experiences with what families think is appropriate? Absolutely. I've seen, um, just to go a little bit deeper, in most cases when people are pre-planning, um, they're in the pre-planning stage where they themselves are making arrangements for themselves. I've seen that families, even if they're not in 100% agreement, they're just a little bit more on one accord, whereas opposed to when someone passes away and we're doing what's called at need arrangements where someone's, you know, passed away and the need for services is immediate. Um, 
I've seen the difference of opinion show up a lot more in those circumstances between perhaps siblings or brothers and sisters or parents or a spouse and children. It's always interesting to me how much of the family dynamic is displayed in the arrangement room. And I've almost gotten to the point where I can tell by the way that everyone walks into the door what to brace for or what to expect. <laughs> uh-huh. um, whether people are making eye contact, if they come in in the same vehicle, if they're having conversation amongst themselves when I walk into the arrangement conference room or not. Um, but I think the one thing that's important to express is that at the end of the day, everyone is reaching and trying and striving towards expressing their level of love for that loved one. And sometimes that love can be explosive and other times it's very somber and other times it's very joyful. I think you're bringing up such a crucial point, both in uh, end of life and after end of life, which is that people tend to do so much better if they know what the person wanted and and feel they're able to honor that. Yes. Uh, I'm remembering when my dad died, he, he fell, he wasn't going to recover. And my mom was, um, they had done all the planning. She mm-hmm. still got worried that we wouldn't agree with her. And we're like, that's what he wanted. You know, it was an easy decision as a family because- right. We were just honoring what he wanted. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to plan for every event. So some ends of life are are not as as crisp as that was. But um, there's no regret then if you kind of are all on the same page about doing what that person wanted, as opposed to a bunch of interpretations of what honoring them looks like. Absolutely correct. Um, Even when families don't necessarily agree with what the person who made the arrangements decided, there is definitely a level of peace and acceptance that comes with saying, you know what, at the end of the day, I didn't agree with this. This is what mom or dad wanted. Mm -hmm. It gets complicated in some circumstances. Um, For example, and not to say this is how it's going to play out, but my dad is, he actually remarried after my mom and he divorced. And prior to him remarrying, my dad and I sat down and had a conversation about what his wishes were, you know, what he wanted, where he wanted to be, how he wanted to be presented. But at that point, I would have been the legal Mexican along with my sister. But now my stepmother or my bonus mom, as I call her, is considered that legal next of kin. So everything that my dad shared with me, if he didn't, if he doesn't share with her, or didn't share with her, you know, it's not guaranteed to go into effect because she now has that last say, should he not have a pre-need arrangement in place. And I think it's important to express here that a lot of times people shy away from conversations about making end of life and post-life care because they feel like they don't have the money And they get intimidated in a lot of situations by professionals that should be there to help them navigate. But what I try to tell everyone is that it's important to just write down what you like and what you don't like, what you want and what you don't want. And that is a form of pre-need planning. 
there's absolutely pre-planning and pre-funding. Now the pre-funding <laughs> aspect comes in when you're talking about actually paying for those desires and paying for those items of merchandise and services, but pre pre-planning doesn't require any funding. It requires conversation. You know, as a result of, of living with a dying person for almost a decade, uh, God, would we got incredibly good at conversation about death. Mm. Uh, not everybody does, I want to say that, but we were both of that bent, you know, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes more than other people wanted to talk about it, but <laughs> that's that was sort of on them, right? We... <laughs> And it just removes so many difficulties. Uh, there, there are decisions I had to make that were hard decisions, but I knew I was empowered with making them mm -hmm. and other decisions that we had already talked about, right? So, but it can be very, very uncomfortable. Even my own children, and look what I do for a living and all that, they got really squirrely when I wanted to talk with them about my plans for myself. Mm. They did not want to deeply dive into what I was thinking about death, you know, personally. Isn't that interesting? That's so I had, to, I had to write it all down, make three copies, and send it send it to all of them and say, read it. <laughs> you know? yes. um, because it was important for me not to leave it with them. But uh, I say that just to say, one person in a family can be comfortable, totally comfortable, I would call myself totally comfortable. And it doesn't mean that everyone wants to have the conversations. Very true. I can, I can say the same. My mom is that person that she doesn't, well, prior to COVID, she didn't want to talk about anything. She didn't want you bringing up death, dying, funeral home, funeral flowers, anything up in her presence. And I think the thing that helped her shift was my uncle's passing in 2015. She then dated a funeral professional after, afterwards. And of course, I'm her daughter, her oldest daughter. Um, and I just was relentless about, look, we need to have these conversations. And so now she'll talk to me about the fact that she wants to be cremated, but that's about as far as we've gotten with the conversation. Her take is, you know what, it's my responsibility. I'm going to take care of everything. You and your sister just, you know, don't feed anybody. Once I pass away, if they, if they wanted to eat with me, they could eat with me here and now. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's a, that's a point of view for sure. You know, it, it brings up something, though, that although I don't perceive you as someone, uh, you know, I perceive you as an extremely caring end-of-life navigator. But when we get back from the break, I want to talk about what a lot of people do experience, which is the pressure to spend money. Oh, gosh. Uh, after the person dies, you know, do we want to call it gouging? I don't know, but it is a, a an extreme pressure that that is framed in a relational way, right? If you more or less, if you really care about this person, you'll buy the biggest casket and you know all of that. And given that you have some perspective on the industry, I'd really love to talk with you about that when we get back from the break. 
I look forward to it. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. I have an uh, uh, account on Instagram, etc. And to find Joelle and Anthony, go to thegravewoman.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Joelle Simone Anthony about her work both in the funeral industry and with with grief. And before the break, I just barely brought up the subject of what I threw in the basket of gouging or, uh, you know, taking advantage really of very vulnerable people. Early grief is you're wide open, right? You hardly have any skin on your body. And um, if someone is is kind of planting the message, you know, there's only spending a lot of money is the way to honor this person. Uh, it can really have an impact, even if that's not your usual way of thinking. And I wondered what you think about the industry in general and how, um, how to handle that tension between 
you know, thriving as an industry and honoring people's process and wishes? This is such an important question, Cheryl, and I'm I'm glad that you you asked it head on. I want to say that having conversations about money with people that are grieving and that may or may not have access to financial resources is one of the most difficult parts of the work that myself and other professionals do. And I want to preface this statement with saying that your average funeral director, most death care professionals get into this business because we have a heart to care for and provide the highest level of quality service to the communities that we serve. However, the funeral homes, the funeral professionals, the cemeteries, the medical examiner's office all operate as an industry. And unfortunately, within ending industry, there's the concept of having to make money in order to survive. Now, should that be the priority of a death care professional when working with grieving families? Absolutely not. But unfortunately, in many cases, it is. I was sharing with you on the break that I can remember working with um, an organization that I'm not going to mention, but being encouraged to not just sell one space when the child would pass away, but all of the spaces around that space are connected to that space and think about the big number at the end, as opposed to looking at the humanity of a mother or father, grandparent doing what they can to honor the loss of a child the best way that they can. There's also a thought that um, someone's funeral should respect or should reflect their position in life. For example, if a wealthy person, you know, passes away, they should have the best of everything, the most expensive casket, the most elaborate floral arrangements, the most expensive interior inside the casket, the best place in the cemetery. And it's my personal belief that those things just aren't that important. When working with families, I tend to lean more towards personalization. How do we celebrate the essence of the individual that has been lost through personal touches that either you and your family can do hands-on through DIY projects and get involved and express your grief and love that way, as opposed to how much money can I make off of this family sitting in front of me? I'm remembering a, a friend of mine uh, died after my wife died and I was asked to come uh, by the person who was arranging her funeral to come dress her mm -hmm. um, after uh, and, I, and I thought at the time um, that it was a little unusual to be allowed by the funeral home right because mm -hmm. you know they're they're kind of that's their gear, I guess. Um, but she looked like herself at the end of the day. And I don't, I've been to many, many, many funerals, as you can imagine. Um, people who are embalmed don't always look like themselves because the person dressing them has never seen them alive. Um, <laughs> have you encountered that as well? That, um, getting the family involved. I don't know if that made a difference in terms of cost, you know, was there a dressing fee that, that, that we didn't pay or I don't know, but um, what do you think about that aspect of it involving the loved ones with the process? 
I think that it is what we're heading back towards more of in this country. At one point, the families did care for the deceased, all of their deceased in this and other parts of the world. And I think as funeral service shifts to be more family and decedent focused as opposed to industry focused, as Mm -hmm. it should be and should have always been, um, I feel like that is going to become more commonplace. I have heard from other professionals. I host something called the Grief Art Workshop, right? And at the last workshop, we had a funeral director who articulated this so beautifully. She said that she had a wife come in and begin to complain. I don't want to say complain, but was not satisfied with her husband's hair. And what she did was get a brush and say, you spent every day with this man. You took care of this man while he was sick. There's no better caregiver for him right now and throughout the end of his life than you. Take this brush and show me what's going to make him look like him to you and those that he loves. And I thought that that was just so beautiful and so profound to put the family in the driver's seat. Because like you said, we don't get the honor of meeting your loved one prior to passing away in many circumstances. In some circumstances Mm, we do, but just to put the family in the driver's seat, um, COVID has changed and put a lot of restriction on what families can do as far as preparing the deceased. Mm -hmm. But just like I said, those personal touches, those favorite colors, for me, it's almost intuitive and spiritual and uh, almost like a clairvoyant art I open myself up and, you know, just I've had experiences where I'm going to put on a a red lipstick, but then something says, why don't you mix a little bit of white in there and make it more of a peachy pink color? And I'm like, oh my God, that's not what the family said. They said red. And upon viewing, the family is astonished that I got grandma's lip color correct. So not just leaning so much on the family's participation, but being open spiritually, if you feel safe to almost let the deceased guide you is important in my opinion as well. Uh, You're bringing up something that really, really moves me and also brings up um, something that, that I'm aware of and um, you'd be a great person to speak to this. The, the, um, the way in which uh, race, culture, tradition, the way in which that all plays in as well, if a funeral director is from a different um, demographic, I guess I'll say, for one of another word, will they really be cueing in to what will be natural in skin tone and, and lip color and all that for the actual body in front of them? Do you find that that's an issue? Um, you this is such a great conversation yes 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 um so um I actually have lots of experience with that exact issue from the perspective of a black professional who was taught basically in mortuary school to only care for white decedents Mm -hmm. there were no cultural competency courses about hair skin makeup or anything that had to do with any other race other than 
white people. And so in response to that, upon becoming licensed, I created continuing education courses about racism, about disenfranchised grief and mourning, and about caring for the hair, skin, and cosmetic needs of Black and BIPOC decedents. And Cheryl, each and every student that takes or signs up for one of my courses are completely blown away about what they learn about the cultural, spiritual, religious, and just overall identity of Black people as it relates to hair and viewing the importance of viewing the body at the end of life. Things that should, in my opinion, be a part of mortuary service and funeral service educational canon. Um, As a Black funeral director, I have a background in master hair care and cosmetology and barbering. So luckily for me, I walked into the funeral home knowing how to care for other types of hair, knowing a little bit about cultural norms. But again, I wasn't taught that in mortuary school. So there you had, is- to, you had to be trained in cosmetology, right? And not everybody is going to go ahead and do that, are they? Yes. No. Um, in the <laughs> funeral home, it's actually called Deserology. And that refers to the cosmetic and cosmetological care of the deceased. But no, not every person is going to have that background. But if we as professionals are licensed to care for the deceased, we should have basic knowledge, especially of cultural expectations of those that differ in race and religion. Absolutely. I I was mentioning to you before we went on the air, uh, I remember the name of that film I was thinking of. It's called Tender. Tender, Uh, tender, yeah. T-E-N-D-E-R by Lynette Walworth. And it's about uh, a community in Australia. I, I should check back in with them. They decided to form their own community based funeral industry um, for lots of reasons. One, the extreme expense, but maybe even more, there were a lot of Maori people in the community who were not supported to have the kind of ritual that that went with their spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. And it was doing damage, right? Because yeah. um, when you can't complete in the way that is appropriate to your belief system, it's really hard for grievers. Yes. Uh, it, it, it lasts forever, <laughs> I want to <laughs> say. So um, they you know, really dived into how to, uh, it's a little bit broader than just the way the person looks. It's the actual rituals that you might, um, might be supporting if a person is from a different um, tradition from your own. Um, I imagine that, that you are very specially able to do that for people. If you have that perspective of, of not assuming what a particular person's traditions might be. Yes. And unfortunately, um, prior to COVID, the death care industry was one of the few industries in the U.S. that was still segregated, Um, especially here in the South. White people go to white funeral homes. Black people go to Black funeral homes. The Asian and Pacific and Hispanic communities fall someplace in the middle. Mm -hmm. And With COVID, I think the biggest gift that came out of it for the funeral service industry is that we lost control over who was able or who came through our doors. 
Um, Because it's just if you've got a spot, we have a body kind of thing. And if, you know, just having to learn to personalize, and I'm going to keep saying that word over and over and over again, having to learn how to personalize and to get creative with expressing ritual in the funeral home became commonplace. And my prayer is that as death care and the death care industry evolves, as more people are choosing to lean on death doulas, as more people are choosing not to die in hospitals, but to, you know, take advantage of, of being able to transition in their homes and more people learn about medical aid and dying and more people learn about the cultural nuances that affect us all at the end of life and specifically the rituals that we practice at the end of life. I pray that we will just continue to lean into that personalization and creating those experiences for mourners. You know, it brings up kind of the heart of the show, which is that grief hurts, right? Loss hurts. And sometimes things come out of it that are, that are quite valuable and beautiful. And um, that's an example that, wouldn't it be great to think, obviously, the grief field overall has been so incredibly impacted by COVID because hardly anybody got got out of it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone was affected by loss. And it, I do notice a change in the conversation, the public conversation. And then we're talking about you know, specific things that at first are really, whoa, difficult and whatever, but might lead to something really transformative, really important and good. I agree 100%. Um, And I just want to add here that as licensed funeral professionals, we are not grief counselors. We're not uh, mental health professionals, but I look at what we do as the gateway to the grief journey for those that we impact. And if what we can do has a positive effect on someone's journey, I think that that is a sacred art. And because I am a mental health professional and I get people after you, right? Before before you and after you is when... (laughs) Um, I, I have sung at funerals before, but, <laughs> you know, my, my, most of my work is, is before or after. It has a lot of impact. What we're talking about has a huge impact. So I agree with you 100%. Let's take a break and come back and talk more about that. Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my webpage, or the Good Grief Host page with links to everything. To find Joelle Anthony, you can go to thegravewoman.com. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page 
or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Joelle Anthony, otherwise known as the Grave Woman, and um you were just saying during the break something I found uh, worth bringing into the show, which is sometimes tradition holds us back. I was recalling after my wife died that I just, um, in terms of ritual, I just followed my instincts. I may have been helped by not fitting in for most of my life before that. <laughs> you know, I, I had a little more practice doing it in a way that was not societally sanctioned, if we, if you will, having, you know, come out at 17 and having, you know, all of that probably did help me <laughs> a little bit, strangely. But um, I realized that at some point, all of the traditions uh, were impulses of particular people that at some point those traditions did not exist uh this came to my mind because my my uh two and a half year old actually had a a dream that was basically jacob's ladder um Mm. where my wife was looking down at her and and she was trying to climb up to meet her and and she said not now baby not yet Mm. And I was like, okay, at some point, someone actually had an experience of that, of Jacob's Ladder. It wasn't just this thing that, you know, tradition says. Um, And that's got to be true of every single ritual. So we don't want to get too hard and fast with tradition. But what's still meaningful that we can carry in? Is that how you look at it? Or uh, tell me about tradition versus um, uh, present ritual. 
Um, I agree. And what an amazing dream for your, your two-year-old, your two and a half year old to have. I thought Um, so. Definitely. And you, you brought up the Jacob's ladder. So I'm going to lean into the conversation of Christianity and grief, right? We're Mm -hmm. taught, uh, because I grew up in a Christian household, even though my culture is Gullah and Geechee culture, um, we went to church, we went to Bible study, we went to revival, you know, we did all of those things while practicing our culture, but it wasn't until recently that I realized there was more to what I've been taught. I've been reading books like the lost book of Enoch, the old Testament supigrapha, and just other texts that really tell the stories behind the stories that were told from the pulpit. Right. And it really made me think and begin to evaluate what we've been taught about grief particularly in the Black community, um, about how it needs to be prayed away or you pray your way through it when sometimes you do need mental health support. Mm -hmm. And like I was sharing during the break, we're having conversations in my family and I'm seeing it happen, particularly here in the South where families are getting together and having Zoom therapy sessions with licensed professionals or certified professionals. And I'm one of those people getting those calls. Like you. um, We're having conversations about cremation and we're actually talking about, you know, what works and what hasn't worked as far as religion and tradition are concerned. And I think that the same applies to the way that we practice death and grief in this country. You use the very interesting word, which I want to lean to, into, which is instinction, in, 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 uh, intuition and instinct. I'm sorry, I fumbled over that. But um, I think that that is the biggest key. Like that's the key right there. And that's what I teach in most of my courses is build rituals about or around what instinctually feels good to you. What is your intuition telling you that you need? What is your body telling you that you need? Don't lean on what someone else told you that your experience has to be. Define and have this experience for yourself because at the end of the day, you are the one that has to navigate what your life and your heart and your mind looks like moving forward with the absence of this person who was obviously a major part of your life and someone that you love dearly. So what does that look like for you, not what someone else has told you? And that's an interesting point, too, because uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned on or off air, you know, my, my wife was sick and, and never well for 10 years. Mm. And because we were uh, people who responded to all kinds of experiences by delving in, right, mm-hmm. uh, we actually... I would say most primarily learned how to navigate feeling and figure out where we, where we were at, right? How, how to be present with what was going on for us. I got so much better at that. But what I find with a lot of grievers is they don't have that practice. And then they're trying to feel what's right for them, but they don't have an avenue to get there. So I say practice ahead of time, <laughs> you yeah. know. You, you've got to practice asking yourself what's right for you. And um, the thing that I think clobbers grievers in general is they're not used to doing that. Right. And, you know, um, I'm going to try to see if I can look up her name really quickly. But there was this story um, about a woman with Alzheimer's. She was a black woman. Um, she was uh, she was on television. She had like a lifestyle channel back in the 90s, which was, you know, 
we see lifestyle bloggers online every day now, but she was really a lifestyle blogger blogger ahead of her time. huh? Yes. Really ahead of her time. And so she was married to her husband. And when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he vowed to take care of her. Well, as she progressed with her disease, he fell in love with someone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And that woman moved into their home. They had a relationship, the husband and the new woman that was their own, but they also were so dedicated to taking care of his wife until she passed away. Um, I think about two years ago. And I remember the conversation online being very judgmental towards the husband and the new woman. But I thought that that was 100% beautiful and just amazing that he recognized that not only did he need that level of support and love in his life to help him through that anticipatory grief, but that they could come together and honor his vows to his wife at the same time. And he had to block all of that out and follow his instinct. And absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) um, I had the honor of meeting with a family not too long ago that had very similar circumstances. And when I tell you, um, I told you that I can almost gauge what to expect when people walk in the door or log onto the computer in today's age, it, it was nothing but love and connection. And all three people were present. The person that they were making plans for had a terminal illness, but there was just so much love and comfort and support in that circumstance as taboo as it may be. You know, that affects a lot of things. For instance, I met my now wife. We've been married for like 25 years now, Mm -hmm. incredibly, about a year and a half after my wife died, Mm. and which was um, soon. (laughs) It felt very soon to me. But some people handled that better than others. Mm. Um, And some friendships didn't survive it. Mm. Um, so that's not the same as, uh, me having met her when my wife was still, still alive, but there is this sort of, um, external perspective on what's right or wrong, or, you know, that has nothing to do with the experience of the people in it, um, that we're talking about a little bit too, aren't we? Yes. And it's so important. Um, one of the first things I tell my families, the first thing is, you know, I'm not here to make the situation better, but what I am going to do is do my best to help you have as much peace as we can through this process flat on the table. But then the second thing I say is to leave everyone else's opinion out of the door. If they're not in this room, if they're not making decisions, if they're not directly involved in these conversations, everyone is going to have an opinion about what you should and shouldn't do. And you're going to drive yourself crazy trying to make everyone happy during this time. If there's not a plan in place, what feels good to you financially, emotionally, spiritually, and what decisions are you going to be happy with 10 years from now? That's interesting. That's a technique that I used about uh, end of life. What can you do now that you'll feel good about in five years? You know, if, if you, you're able to say in five years, I feel good about the way I handled that. What would you be doing mm-hmm. right now? 
to be able to say that. And it usually does help people to think about it, take them out of the the stress of the moment a little bit. So I, I do, I have seen that work with all kinds of end of life um, contemplations or, or questions to be answered. So we, we have um, obviously touched on COVID a little bit. Uh, I know in my line of work, it's, it's been a big time. Are you still there, Joelle? I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> you were so quiet. Uh, I assume that that is the truth in your industry too. It's been a big time. Um, it- and I wonder, you know, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I assume that people who encounter grievers all the time uh, you're used to encountering bodies, right? But encountering grievers all the time, you really have to put some energy into self-care, correct? 100%. And that's actually another course that I teach. I'm self-care for death care professionals. And when I say death care professionals, I'm not limiting it to funeral directors and embalmers. I'm talking about first responders, police officers, nurses, doctors, those that respond, firefighters, respond to car accidents, mm-hmm. those removal techs, even veterinarians. Um, believe it or not, I had a conversation with um, a veterinarian last week when taking my dog to the doctor and she just was talking about the amount of animals that passed away during COVID just due to being abandoned. Yeah. And, yeah. And so just anyone who deals with death on a regular basis is important to have self-care rituals and self-care protocols in place. And I almost, I used to love the term self-care, but I feel like it's become a disillusioned version of girls' nights and pedicures and, you know, trips to the winery. But I feel like it goes a lot deeper, checking in with yourself on a regular basis and asking yourself, how am I doing in this moment? Am I taking on more than I have the capacity for? And for me, what was very important was setting boundaries. I was that eager funeral director, or excuse me, that eager funeral apprentice right out of mortuary school that just wanted to do and go above and beyond for the funeral home, for the families for everyone that I came in contact with, but little did I know it was a recipe for disaster because I was not taking care of myself. I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't. You know, you know, Joelle, I wish we had another hour because that is a whole other conversation, isn't it? it really- we're, unfortunately, we're out of time, but um, oh. <laughs> at least we, at least we made a nod to, you know, figuring out what you need and supplying it so you can keep doing this. Uh, please go to find Joel Anthony at gravewoman, the, thegravewoman.com. Next week, I'll have E.B. Bartels to talk about her forthcoming book, Good Grief, on loving pets here and hereafter. I got to love the title. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information,